When I was a kid growing up in Jersey, uh, anybody who was a hoot or really funny or something, uh, we'd call them a riot. Ladies and gents, uh, this guy's a riot in more ways than one. Bob Dylan. I'm going down to Rosemary's. She never does me wrong. She puts it to me plain as day and gives it to me for a song. It's a wicked life, but what the hell? The stars ain't falling down. I'm standing outside the Taj Mahal. I don't see no one around. Going to Acapulco, going on the run. Going down to see Fat Gut, going to have some fun. Yeah, going to have some fun. This is Pod Dylan, the show that celebrates the work of Bob Dylan, one song at a time, proud member of the Fire and Water Podcast Network. I'm your host at Freewheeling, Rob Kelly. And joining us this week to talk about going to Acapulco from the legendary basement tapes is fellow Bobcat, Rob Riley. Hi, Rob. Hey, Rob. How are you? Thanks for having me. Uh, you're, you're very welcome. We are full of uh, Roberts on this call. We got, we got two Robs talking about a Bob. The Holy Trinity. Yeah, exactly. Uh, so last year, you appeared over on my MASHcast show, and we had a great time talking about an episode of that series. And then at some point, uh, we were talking, I figured it was via email, or he was on the call that we, we discovered that we both loved uh, Bob. And I'm always excited when someone shares more than one interest of mine. <laughs> I, I, you know, not that... Not that either one of those things is like rare. Bob Dylan's massively popular. Mash was massively popular, but still, there isn't a ton of crossover in those things. So I was so excited to find out that oh, I can have you over on this show as well. It really worked out perfectly. So thank you for That's being great. here. Great, yeah, my pleasure. I was thinking about that crossover today. Like, what are what are the things that might be kinship between Mash and Bob Dylan? And I was thinking like. Both of them are subversive, but Match was a subversive TV show. They're both, uh, you know, Bob Dylan is, the writing is incredible. The writing on Match is incredible. <laughs> and, um, you know, Bob Dylan is a funny guy. I think this, this song might might be some indication towards that. And, of course, Match is one of the funniest shows ever made. So I think I think at least in three areas, there's, there's some crossover there. That's fair enough. So uh, before we get started talking about this song, uh, since this is your first time on this show, Rob, I got to ask you, like, how did you become a fan of Bob? I feel like fan is, is like not strong enough a word. Not not that I'm a uh, super fan, but I think when you get into Bob, you know, if you really get it, you get it. It's more like a conversion. You like you become more aware of the world as, as a as somebody who is a fan of Bob Dylan. And for me, it was a, a slow conversion because you know I I don't want to age myself. Uh, to the you know, too much, but let's just say I'm street legal years old. So <laughs> uh, you know, I, as a child of the '80s and early '90s, you know, Bob had sort of fallen out of the culture, and the culture had become more of a monoculture of you know Michael Jackson, Madonna, all the all the big superstars had taken over, and it was sort of a, a low point commercially for Bob. I don't buy into the that the '80s were a, a lost decade for, for for Dylan creatively. I think some of his best work is there. But as far as from a commercial point of view, he had kind of fallen out of out of the spotlight, and I didn't I didn't know very much about him. I, I think um, you know, if you ask me as a, as a young person or as an early teen, you know, I would have said, sure, I know Bob Dylan. I would have said he's like, you know, some 1960s folk guy blowing in the wind. I kind of knew that, or Mr. Tambourine Man. If you asked me how old he was, I would I would have said, you know, he's 81 or something like that. You know, he he just seemed old to me then. <laughs> just from my my young perspective, uh, you know, I sort of knew about Dylan uh, going electric, but I, I also sort of knew about Frampton coming alive. And I, you could have told me those are the same thing, and then I, you know, wouldn't known any different. And I started to change. Oh, also, like you realize that oh, okay, Bob Dylan's still around, but people would say, oh, you know, he's lost his voice. He can't understand the word he says at concerts. He mumbles. And I feel like you sort of had to unlearn all those things that you've been told about Dylan in order to really, you know. Be, know what's true about Dylan and, and know, you know, how, um, you know, who he really is as an artist. And that started to happen to me in the mid 2000s. And I, I can pin into the first time that I heard tonight, I'll be staying here with you. Uh, a friend was playing a mixtape with that song on it. And I was like, who is this? And my friend's like, it's Bob Dylan. I'm like, no, there's, <laughs> there's no way that's Bob Dylan. Like listen to this guy's voice. It's not Bob Dylan, but you know, sure enough, that's, you know, it was, I didn't know anything about the Nashville skyline or, the morning or the crooning phase of Dylan. So that just got me thinking like, wow, like there's more to this guy than, than I had thought. And I started to listen to this uh, New York radio station. Maybe you listened to it too, uh, Rob, WFUV, and they would play a lot of deep cuts of Dylan. And I started to learn more than just the, the basic songs. 
and then you know realize slowly oh wow this this is a great song this is a great song this is bob dylan oh wow this is a great song um and then like really in the mid-2000s there's like these couple of things happened in, in cinema one is no direction home the, the first scorsese doc and you learn about you know the, that 65 66 tour and how how big of a deal actually it was when dylan went electric and how he was playing to these crowds that were booing him like going there specifically to boo him. And that got me into the D.A. Pennebacher. I don't look back and just realized, like, wow, how cool was Bob Dylan back then? Like, how much of a punk was he? How much how much ahead of his time is he? And he just, you know, and then um, Chronicles came out and how weird that book is. And some of it's true, some of it's not. And all started to come together in this, like, brief period in the, in the mid-2000s where I was starting to realize, you know, who Bob Dylan was in the culture and how amazing it was that he's still with us. Um, and then really, uh, I think what brings me here today is when I saw no, um, I'm Not There, the Todd Haynes film, which towards the end of the film, you have Jim James singing Going to Acapulco, which is a song I, I'd never heard of. I didn't really know that much about the basement tapes at that time. And it just like, sunk me deeper into the hole. Of, like, what, what is a song? Like, what are the basement tapes? Like, all, all this, there's so much more to learn. And I'm still like, I'm, you know, I'm still pretty fresh. 20 years in or whatever it is, and I still feel like I'm learning every day about Bob Dylan. So that's how I became a fan of Bob. Hmm. Okay. That's a, <laughs> that's pretty amazing. Yeah. I, t- tonight I'll be staying here with you. It was one of my favorites of his as well. Um, have you ever had a chance to see Bob live? Yeah. I've seen him a, a bunch of times. I, I, you know, right after in 2007 was the first time I, I saw him was at Jones beach. I, I think Jones beach is, is in, in Long Island, New York. And it's a hit or miss because you have to be pretty close to get really good sound. At that time, I wasn't I wasn't that close, but I knew there was something going on that uh, you know that it was good, but I couldn't tell how good it was, or I couldn't get into it that much. And then I saw him again in 2009 at the United Palace up in Harlem, and that is still probably one of the greatest shows I've ever seen. That that tour in 2009 was um, Charlie Sexton, and the band it's just like the most amazing band. And, he was in great voice and great spirits and it was just such a mind-blowing moment for me to be that close to him in, in a room like that and to realize like man this guy that i've been watching and you know in those films and those documentaries and listen to his songs like he's still here and then i'm in the same room with him and it's just one of the most amazing experiences uh and I, i've seen him a bunch of times since i, I saw the rough and rowdy's tour uh at the beacon theater and again he's just he's all fired He's still got it, and uh, you know, his, you know, talk about people uh, saying that his voice isn't up to par. Like the man can still sing, and he's got a, <laughs> you know, it's a unique voice, but it's he can deliver the goods when he wants to, and, and he was delivering the goods that night and last November. That's great. That's awesome that you got to see him on the, the the most recent tour. That's fantastic. Yeah, I brought my niece. I'm trying to do the same thing for my niece. She's uh, 21 years old, so I'm trying to without nudging too much, trying to you know. <laughs> open the door for her a little bit. And I, I warned her, I'm like, you know, if you're, if you're, if you want to see Bob Dylan in the sixties, that's not, that's gone. But you know, <laughs> he's for, for the, for the songs that he's written in the, in the last 20 years, he's, it's going to be great. So try to listen to those songs before him. But I warned her like, you know, he's not going to talk to the audience. He's not going to engage much. He might stand up and put his hand on his hip a little bit. <laughs> but again, he like blew expectations away because he talked a lot to the audience. And I've heard, I heard your episode on Ruffin Rinaldi and I've heard he's been talking a lot. But uh, he was, um, somebody yelled out for Pretty Boy Floyd in the <laughs> show and he was like, you're at the wrong show. You got to see Springsteen on Broadway. <laughs> like everyone was shocked. Like I saw him in 2019. He pointed at the audience and just pointing everyone went crazy. And then, you know, just because he like, he recognized that there was an audience there. But at the show, Rough and Rowdy was, you know, talking about going to see Springsteen on Broadway. And at the end of the show, he was talking about how uh, Sylvester Stallone should have won an Oscar for Last Blood, the last latest Rambo movie. <laughs> so I was like, I don't, to many, I don't know. He's, you know, he's in it. He's, he's happy to be back on, on tour. <laughs> I think we talked about that on on that episode where it's like I never have any full sense of like how much Bob is like aware of the greater popular culture around him because sometimes I feel like he's completely unaware of it all like he's just reading books 
and you know reading old manuscripts and he's just not at all connected and then there's other times where i'm like no i think he's super plugged in like you know what i mean <laughs> I, I mean obviously he's as plugged in as he wants to be because he's probably got a team of people that can get him anything that he wants but i don't know sometimes he feels like i'm like he's just now he's like off in a cave somewhere he's not paying attention to the internet and then he knows the name of the most recent Rambo movie. I couldn't name the most recent Rambo movie. I knew there was one, well, he, but I don't remember did, the title of it. He did have to ask the band what the name of it was. He, he knew <laughs> it was Sylvester Stallone's last movie. He, he didn't remember the name of it. He said last, last something. But they're like, yeah, last, last blood. But he did, he did have two years to catch up on culture with the pandemic. So maybe that's, that's why that, he's, you know, that's he's a still good a little point. bit behind, but he's, he's catching up. I love the idea of Bob with like all of his streaming services and stuff. And he's just like watch, watching all these movies. And so he's like, Ooh, house of Gucci's out today. Let me watch that. You know, like, <laughs> what is that? What is that life? Like, that's just amazing. Well, that's great. Um, how has your, you said it was your niece that you were trying to get into it. She enjoyed the show. She really enjoyed the show. She's more of a Joni person though. She's, she's, she won't give up uh, her top spot for, you know, it's still going to be Joni Mitchell for her, but that's close enough for me. I'm happy with that. Oh, sure. Absolutely. So it's that, that, I mean, obviously if your, your, your niece is into Joni Mitchell, it's not a, it's not a huge step, you know, it's not like your niece is only into modern stuff and you're like, all right, listen to this guy from 50 years ago. She's already hip to music of older, you know, of an older generation. Yeah. Yeah. But I, I want her to see that, you know, that what she thinks she knows about doing, it might not actually be what, what's true. And I think mm-hmm. she saw that on the rough and rowdy show. That's great. That's fantastic. Well, I said, if she loves Bob from the sixties, you know, I mean, there's, you know, there's what, 10 records and tons of footage. So there's more than enough to, and then even, you know, a million hours of bootleg bootleg material out there. So yeah. I mean, if you want to, you want Bob of the sixties, you can get it if you want. So, well, you that's, know, I that's, was going to ask, I was going to ask, uh, speaking of that, Rob, I was going to ask you this question, like, I was thinking how great it is that we, like you were saying, we get to see all that stuff from the 60s, but we don't know what it was like to be there for like mm-hmm. the first, you know, from the Rolling Stone tour or, or the um, Rolling Thunder tour or to see those songs when they were first live. Would you rather be alive today and get to see all that stuff in the past and, and but also you know, see all the 80s and 90s and be able to experience all that music or would you rather to have been in the crowd in like 1965 but not gotten to see the rough and rowdies, you know, which of those would you prefer? Are you happier (laughs) where we are now? Or would you rather like be one of those people in the audience? Uh, Wow. I'm not used to being quizzed on my own show so early on. Uh, I I mean, yeah, I feel like I appreciate it. I mean, who the hell knows? But I, I mean, boy, I mean, I would imagine seeing him in 1965 would be pretty amazing, but, I don't know. I like having this perspective. I like having seen yeah. so many eras and be able to kind of judge them as, oh, they were, that was a, a, a period. And I can look at it. I mean, we've talked about this on other shows, like the people that were alive when he went, you know, born again, you know, and I'm able to look at it as, oh, okay, that was something he did and he came out of right. it and I can judge the music for what it was. But I would imagine if you were a huge fan and all of a sudden he starts rapping about Christ. You're like, what? Is, what? <laughs> what is happening? And you don't know that he's going to come out of it. You know, you don't know. Right. Uh, you know, I mean, it's, it's. I mean, maybe similar to what people are going through with like Van Morrison now, or like Van Morrison's like going down this crazy like anti-vax road. And like, I wonder if you're a fan of his. You're like, what is he doing? Is he going to come out of this? Is he going to? I have. No, I don't know. So no, I. I like when I discover something. I like that there's a lot of it, and I like in some ways there's more of it than I'll ever get to even experience. I feel like if I've seen everything of something, it gets a little like, well, all right, now I've seen it all at this point. So it's one of the reasons why, you know, I like mash so much. It's like there's 250 of them to enjoy 251. to be completely nerdy about it. Uh, But you know, with Dylan, there's 60 years of material to perm through. And there's again, I'll never hear it all. So uh, I kind of enjoy that. And so I think if I like, if I knew him in the sixties, it would just be, well, there's like those four records. That's it so far. Right. You know? But now it's like, well, no, there's a million, there's a million hours of stuff. I, I joke, I joke about this with uh, my co-host, uh, the irredeemable shag over on fire and water. Like he's a huge doctor who fan. And like, I wish I could like get into doctor who because there's 50 years of episodes to watch. So it's like, if I was into it, 
I would really be into it, but I can't like I've watched it and I just go, eh, okay. I don't have anything. I don't have any problem with it, but it doesn't make me want to watch more. But I wish I kind of like did because I'm like, man, that'd be great to be into a sci-fi show that there's that many episodes to enjoy, that many eras to enjoy. I mean, Bob Dylan yeah. is like the like the Doctor in a lot of ways, and that that's that, that sort of way. <laughs> so yeah, it's, it's, it's man that travels through all, all eras. Exactly. Uh, that's it's a very interesting question, Ron. So thank you. Um, so all right, so let's let's talk about going to Acapulco. Uh, definitely one of the more obscure songs, I would say, in the Dylan canon. Yet, uh, and we've talked about this on other episodes where we've covered basement tape songs, you know, now that we know how much basement tape material was recorded, um, the fact that, you know, we, the fact that there was so much material recorded, the stuff that made it onto the 1975 record, that certainly indicates that Dylan and his camp or Robbie Robertson and whoever else was in, in charge of this obviously had very particular feelings about these songs because there was so much distillation, you know, I mean, there was hundreds of songs recorded and it ends up being down to like what these 20 songs on the record. So even though going to Acapulco is not really one of the more famous ones, it still made the cut ahead of a lot of other material, which have now been unearthed thanks to the bootleg series. So, Let's start. Like, why did you want to talk about this one? I, I think, uh, like I said earlier, when I when I saw the performance, the Jim James cover of it uh, with Klexco and I'm not there. It's it's a really striking song. Just the it's so confusing too. This it's like a like an elegy. It's an elegiac song that it's sort of like in the in the film it takes place uh, during a funeral. They're singing they're singing during a, a funeral for a young girl, but it's a song about. You know, going to Acapulco and drinking rum and going to see a woman and gonna have some fun, but it's it's uh, you know it seems like wait a minute this is a, the melody is what draws you in which is not typical for a Bob song it's like this this dirgy really it does sound almost like a funeral song hmm. um, even the, like the, the the Jim James version is very close to the the Dylan version so both of them have have that 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 sadder feel to it but then then when you listen to the lyrics you're like what why is it a sad song? Like, why is the song about going to Acapulco and going to have some fun? What, what's he really talking about? Like, what's going on underneath the, the surface of the song? And that, that's really what, I think that dissonance between the lyrics and the melody um, really, is really what draws me to the song. And, and, maybe one, and it doesn't sound very much like other Dylan songs. I mean, maybe it sounds like maybe um, uh, Tears of Rage a little bit, like some of the, some of the other uh, basement tape songs. It sounds a little bit like it could be a Rick Danko song, but it doesn't. There's not a lot of Dylan material that sounds like Going Acapulco, so it, I feel like it stands out as far as uh, a Bob Dylan song, and it just you know, makes me c- curious about it. And it doesn't really get old because there's that 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 uh, difference between how it sounds and what what the song meanings are. It always gets me thinking, you know, what does this mean? And, What's the feeling that I, that, I, that I get from it? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, uh, I was, you know, I was doing some research on it before we started this. And then, you know, there was someone, uh, one of the columns I was reading online talked about that, of course, you know, there was a, uh, an Elvis Presley movie called Fun in Acapulco. And, uh, you know, I mean, in the refrain of the song, he talks about going to Acapulco and going to have some fun. And we you know, certainly know that uh, what you know, Elvis, how much of an influence he was on, on Dylan. But yeah, you're right. It does have a kind of, dirgy sad sound to it uh which is sort of uh intention with the title because going to Acapulco and you know again the going to have some fun it sounds like this light frolic of a song and yet first of all it's length it's it's about five and a half minutes which is pretty long you would think sort of again from the title you know you're thinking oh this is gonna be like some little three minute you know little calypso number or something and it really it really is not um and yeah you you mentioned the the cover and we will talk about that because it's a i think it's really pretty extraordinary um but yeah it's it i'm you know i I don't exactly know what is going on in this song uh the song continues on he says uh, now whenever i get up and i ain't uh, got what i see i just make it down to rosemary's about a quarter after three there are worse ways of getting there, and I ain't complaining none. If the clouds don't drop and the train don't stop, I'm bound to meet the sun. And the back to the refrain going but, out. So, Rob, those are those are the lyrics on on the Bob Dylan website. Those are never the lyrics that Bob sings. Right, not, not right. On, 
Not on, not on the raw version of the basement tapes and not on the official release in 75. I don't know, maybe you know more than I do, and how, when, were those initial lyrics that he wrote and then sang different lyrics? There's no recorded version that I know of that has those lyrics about going on the train or uh, clouds don't drop and the rain don't, train don't stop. I, mean, I don't I don't know how that is. It's just like, oh, I should have sang this instead and he changes it after the fact. You know, I mean, I don't exactly know. I do know that, you know, the, a lot of these songs were transcribed, like, you know, after the fact, uh, you know, like I'm Not There was apparently the part of the reason that wasn't copyrighted until like the mid or the early 70s was because uh, that song is all just kind of Bob rolling around sounds in his mouth. And they literally had to like, well, we got to write something down. But yeah, I was going to mention that. Yeah. It's interesting that the lyrics on the website are not what you hear him singing at all. Uh, and again, you think it's like, wow, he went back and I, he went back and, you know, the, you know, clearly the versions that are available, the one on the basement tapes and then the alternates on the bootleg series are clear enough that you can understand what he is saying. And yet they go, when they go finally sort of officially transcribe it with a music publisher, in this case, it's dwarf music. Uh, it's, it is very different. And you got to wonder, like, did Bob sit down and say, no, 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 I, it should sound like this. Let me do that. Uh, it's just sort of baffling it, why, for a song that uh, that has never been played live. Like it's you know he basically did it for the basement tapes and then they sort of just put it aside forever. Uh, you know he seemed to obviously want to spend some time tinkering with it if it's so drastically different in the quote unquote official version. Yeah, I the, if you um, if you go on Spotify to um, if you go to the original seventy five release of the song it has it has the popular dot com lyrics but if you go to the on um, the raw bootleg series release that came out more recently I think they do a, a transcription so it's it's actually what he's singing so if you check the lyrics there they line up but if you check bobdylan dot com or if you check the seventy five lyrics it's the it's it has like two different two verses that are like completely different. What do you think? What what do you well, what do you think of the lyrics that are on the Bob Dylan side as compared to what you're hearing in the? Obviously, it's the basement version is the one that really caught your fancy. Yeah, so I, I, I'm I'm not I'm, I haven't come to a conclusion. So when I when I first heard the song "Go in Acapulco," I wonder if like is Acapulco just like a uh, you know like a, a dreamy destination in his mind, like going going to somewhere better, going you know any any random. Um, you know, tropical destination. But in the rewritten lyrics, or, or in the lyrics on Bob.com, he talks about going down to Taj Mahal. Hmm. And I was looking that up. I was thinking, well, Ta- Taj Mahal is not in Acapulco. But <laughs> upon further research, I realized that, that I found this photo of a, a club Taj Mahal that, that was popular in Acapulco in the 1960s and 70s. So that that places this song actually in Acapulco. If Bob Dylan was singing about this place called the club Taj Mahal, which was apparently like a chic place to visit in Acapulco, then that for me, that means that he's actually thinking about Acapulco and maybe Bob's even been to Acapulco and knows the Taj Mahal. So uh, that, that gives me some idea of like, this isn't just a dream. My place, this isn't like a, a metaphor it's it's actually he's thinking about acapulco when he's singing it at least according to the, the bobdylan.com lyrics and i i did the research and i saw the the elvis connection to the fun in acapulco i went a step further rob and i watched fun in acapulco because i wanted to see if there was any <laughs> wow. connection there between <laughs> between um uh the song because i like you i know that you know uh bob loves elvis and maybe it's i think uh, uh, fun in acapulco came out in the mid 60s it was very possible that it was inspiration. And there's even the theme, like the theme, the song that Elvis writ, wrote for Fun in Acapulco. I'm like you. I know you're not a, a guy who knows or reads music, and neither am I. But we're both fascinated by people who do. So uh, my friend Matt is a uh, you know went to went to school for music, and I sent him both songs, Fun in Acapulco and Go in Acapulco. And I said, is there any connection at all musically between these two songs? Like maybe Bob is tinkering with it or something, and. Uh, my friend Matt could not find any musical connection, so there's no musical theory connecting these songs. But um, <laughs> fun, fun in Acapulco, the movie, Elvis plays uh, a trapeze artist who gets the yips. <laughs> so basically, he uh, he's a trapeze artist from Tampa, Florida, named Mike Wingren, 
and his brother dies in a, in a trapeze accident because his, his, his whole family's a trapeze artist. So he runs away to Acapulco to get away from his, his fear of the trapeze, I guess. And he gets mixed up with two women and he finally overcomes his fear by uh, jumping off a cliff. None of this makes any sense. But the, uh, the only thing that I, can, that I can draw as a connection to Dylan is that, you know, Dylan went up to Woodstock. He, he had, you know, you might call it the Ips, you know, getting off that 65 to 66 tour. He wanted to get away from it all. He had a motorcycle crash, maybe. Uh, maybe it was bad, maybe it wasn't. But, you know, maybe there's a connection there with Elvis playing this trapeze artist who needs to get away and, and overcome his fears and Dylan's hiding away in Woodstock. And then I also found, you might know this, but the, like where Dylan was talking to Nora Ephron in an interview in the summer of 65. And she asks Bob if he's a poet. And he says, no, no, I'm not a poet. I don't like that word. I'm a trapeze artist. So I don't know. <laughs> maybe Bob Felton really loved that movie with Elvis as a trapeze artist himself. And he himself is a trapeze artist. And that's, that's maybe the genesis of going to Acapulco. <laughs> I, I, I don't think so. But this is a podcast where we, where we talk about those theories. That is as valid as any other theory I've ever heard on the show. And I commend you on the research of watching fun in Acapulco. I mean, uh, <laughs> I mean, I didn't go to that. Like yeah. I'm a, I was not going to sit through that whole Elvis movie just for, just for the sake of this episode. There should be more movies made like that made today. It's just ridiculous. And you can't even explain it without, you know, without laughing, but I mean, it's a fun watch, you know. It's, it's not good, but it's a fun watch. I, I, uh, uh. <laughs> I, I mean, I, that that's marvelous, Rob. This is marvelous. Yeah, I mean, by the way, fun fact: I, I learned this many years ago. Elvis Presley is the only movie actor uh, where every one of his movies made money. Everyone, his movies wow. never, his movies never, he never had a flop in all of those movies. So, uh, yeah, they were real boy. Just, just that, just that bare bones plot synopsis you just gave they really did just kind of like almost do like, like re that refrigerator magnet poetry for his scripts it seems like it was just like okay <laughs> in this one he's in acapulco and he's a trapeze art yeah sure that's fine let's let's go ahead and do that yeah <laughs> I, I do wonder sometimes again not to get off not to get too far away from the song but like i do wonder sometimes if bob you know watched those Elvis movies where he was just getting carted around and, you know, he was kind of being served up as he was so far away from his dangerous persona. That, I mean, when you think about how dangerous Elvis was in 1955 yeah. and then, then he's being served up like he's family entertainment. You got to wonder if he sat there and just was sort of like, boy, you know, there, but for the grace of God, go I kind of thing, you know, just being really careful to make sure that kind of thing didn't happen to him. That he was not that that was really much of a chance, but but still, just you got to wonder if someone you worship that much, and then you see him doing this stuff where it's like, what is he doing? What is he wasting his time in this for? Uh, but I like that I a lot. Yeah, I, I really, I really like that theory. I I don't know if Bob thinks that way. I mean, he he always subverts our. We want to put him up on a pedestal, but he always takes takes the effort to make sure we don't do that. Like, you know, appearing in Victoria's Secret commercials and Dharma and Greg, like. <laughs> He he does not want to be on that pedestal. I don't think he doesn't want to end up like Elvis in, in the other way. He doesn't want to be somebody who's held up. He wants to make sure that uh, you know he's he's on he's on the ground at all times. Yeah, right. He's not this uh, ossified you know legend that can't move. He can just sort of do like you just mentioned. He can do what he wants. He can do a Victoria's Secret commercial, or he can appear on Darman Greg of all places, you know, or <laughs> host a radio show, you know, and at the same time, you know, get a medal of freedom from the president. He can just do right, all those sorts right. of things, you know, uh, I fit now some of the alternate lyrics to the, to going to Acapulco. I mean, I quoted the ones from Bob but then, uh, we've got now whenever I get up and can't find what I need, I just make it down to Rosemary's and get something quick to eat. It's not about a way to make a living and I ain't complaining none, but I can plow my plum and drink my rum and then go on home and have my fun. Uh, and then it sort of pairs up again with the, uh, now if someone offers me a joke, I just say, no, thanks. And I tell it like it is and keep away from pranks. Well, other time, you know, when the well breaks down, I go pump on it. Some Rosemary, she likes to go to big places and just sit there waiting for me to come, going to Acapulco. Now, I mean, you can't possibly ignore 
or missed all the sexual innuendo going on here uh, with Rosemarie waiting, you know, she's waiting for you to come like, well, okay. And, you know, stuff like that. Um, Again, it's, it's sort of fun. Like you talked about at the beginning, like the lyrics sound like a party. uh, And yet his, his vocal delivery is so kind of world, world weary kind of thing. Yeah. And it just has that kind of like, you know, someone who's maybe been partying a little too hard. And this is exactly, kind of like yeah. the, uh, the hangover afterwards. It really has that kind of strange feel to it. And of course the band is, is you know, is sort of perfect accompaniment uh, right. for, for this song. And they tried it a couple of times. Uh, there are two alternate takes on the, the basement takes version. Do you find uh, them, either one of them to be noticeably different in terms of your appreciation of it? Or you still like the, the basement takes one the most? Well, I've only heard um, for the basement tapes the one, the seventy-five one, and then the, I only heard one version. I don't. I guess I don't have the full, or I listen on Spotify to the the raw version, and and I think that's only without overdub. So it, I don't think it's that different of a version. I, don't, I haven't heard the second version. But speaking about the um, the lyrics and sort of the world weary sound, this to me sounds like a a song about Saturday night written on Sunday morning. I'm sort of that song, it's like about the party, but after the party's over and the lights come up, it's like, it's not actually a pretty scene after all. And I think there's a kinship and some people, you know, might balk at this, but I think there's a kinship to this and, and some of the Jimmy Buffett songs, another, you know, artist that Bob Dylan surprisingly likes, but, you know, <laughs> think about Margaritaville or think about Pirate of the 40, which Bob Dylan covered with Joan Baez. Yep. Like, these are songs about the, you know, the good life, but, you know, if you live in the good life a little too long, it, it you can get a little bit sad. That's I think that's sort of my initial first pass theory of like what's going on under the, under the hood of this song. And <laughs> speaking of nightlife, like literally nightlife by Willie Nelson. You know, nightlife it's a good life, but you know it's my life. I think this is sort of in, in the in the lineage of of that type of song, or or in literature. This is you know thinking about like Bukowski or someone who who really venerate who. You know, takes the, the, the low the low end of life and, and raises it up to the level of literature, raises it up to the level of music and, and sings about those types of people. Um, I think it, it, that's, what, that's what the lyrics remind me of mostly. Hmm. Do you think it's, you know, I mean, it's impossible to guess, obviously, what's going on in Bob's head at any point. But I do wonder, like, this, these songs, this whole approach uh, to music, music making, uh, during the summer of love, you know, was so opposite what was going on. You know, um, I love the data point I read where they said that um, it was like the Beatles spent 109 days of studio time making Sgt. Peppers. And they said Bob Dylan recorded every album up through Desire in 90 days. Mm-hmm. You know? And you like just think about that. <laughs> think about you know. And I'm not I'm not criticizing one over the other, one approach over the other. But it's it's interesting is that you know music with like Jimi Hendrix and um, you know the Jefferson Airplane like stuff was getting more and more kind of baroque and produced. And you know there was the Phil Spector wall of sound, and it was like bigger and more. And you know, and I almost wonder if Dylan, but you know, obviously just by the very style of the Basement Chase that it was recorded so lo-fi that it was just him and a bunch of guys sitting around a room somewhere, as he's, as he has mentioned with a dog on the floor, you know, and this was recorded with nice equipment. It wasn't like Bob was doing it on the cheap, but it was just so there was, you know, not a lot of, not until later, not really any overdubs or any kind of crazy stuff. It was just a basic sort of setup. You have to wonder if like Bob is sort of looking out. I mean, we know he moved to Woodstock to get away from the sort of, you know, what would become the Woodstock generation he kind of did that to get away from all that. I'm almost wondering if these kinds of songs, not that there aren't party songs on the basement tapes, but these types of songs are sort of like a warning, kind of what you're talking about. Like he's sort of saying, we're all, this is all getting, all getting too much. You know, like it's, there's, there's this sort of feeling out there that more is more. And he might be saying, you know what? Less is more in some cases, because again, yeah. think about, think about what was going on in music at the time. And what does he come up with? after the basement tapes have come and gone, John Wesley Harding, the most stripped down thing imaginable. And it was, you know, sometimes I hear some of these songs where he's sort of kind of warning, don't, you know, don't get too far, don't go too far off of that limb because it's, 
it's going to come back to bite you. Not that it's the lyrics are saying that in this song, but again, as we're talking about right. that sort of vocal performance has that feel to it. But I mean, if, if you watch those, those documentaries about the 65 tour with the band, like, and, and Bob said it himself, like he, if he kept going that way, he wasn't going to make it out. Like mm-hmm. you see how, 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 how wired he is during that time. And just, you know, I don't know if it's drugs or not, or just like, you see him these days, you can, you can't stand still still. So I, I don't know, but, I think like you know, rumor is that they they were going a little too hard, too fast, and the motorcycle crash was was an excuse to like get off that hamster wheel and mm-hmm. and reassess. And I I think you know, probably yeah he he would have gone the way of so many other you know, of the rock stars of that generation who who went too far too fast. And luckily you know Bob and the band they got off you know they they stepped off that wheel they stepped sideways and <laughs> moved up to Woodstock and they. And they're only like 25 or 26 years old. That's insane. Uh, but, you know, maybe it's like the, you know, the quarter life crisis that people talk about. You know, Bob was, Bob was, you know, he had reached, you see how much of ambition he had, even like from, you know, all the way from, from the kid in Minnesota stealing his friend's records and, you know, and joining the, the band with Bobby V and all those things. He just had so much ambition. And then he made it to the top of the world in, you know, 10 years or so, not even. Yeah, and then he, he must have looked over the edge and said, "All right, well, now what? Because this is—I don't want to go any—I don't want to go another step further because, you know, uh, look what happens to me when, when I when I'm at the top." So I, I think absolutely it's a reaction to not only the culture, but like he was at the forefront of the culture. I think he saw over the edge and was smart enough to say, "Hey, this is this is not going the right way. We have to let's back down a little bit. Let's get back to basics." Um, so yeah, I totally agree with that that analysis. Hmm. And it, even the the penultimate verse to me even has that feeling to it. Uh, I, I was just saying it's not really in the lyrics, but it kind of is. Where he says, "Well, other time, you know, when the well breaks down, I go to pump on it some." Rosemary, she likes to go to big places and just sit there waiting for me to come. I mean, yeah, and you know, in a literal sense, Rosemary is a woman, maybe a prostitute that he's spending time with down in Acapulco. But at the same time, Rosemary could be temptation. Rosemary could be. A, you know a societal movement and they're wait you know rosemary is just sitting there waiting for me to come well a lot of people were waiting for bob dylan to show up and uh-huh. kind of grab that van you know be that vanguard and he didn't want that he didn't want any of that he's no 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 no. i you know i want to stay over yeah. here and do my own thing so it's it, you know like a lot of like a lot of dylan songs it seems so simple when you first see it and then you read into it more and you go well wait a minute no it really yeah. could be this it could be this other thing uh and i mean rosemary of course like you know bob loves old-timey women names you know he loves he loves putting women's uh, names in songs that sound like they are you know from a 1930s novel uh you know like it's it has that kind of sound to it uh, women were not really named rosemary much by 1967 but you know they were. I have in... a couple of theories. Oh, go on. go ahead. Rosemary might be okay. So we'll go to the well. I'm pumping in some, and and she gives it to me for a song. In the first pass, obviously, I think you think of a prostitute and pumping in some whatever. But maybe the well is the well of inspiration, and maybe Rosemary is muse, and he goes to see the muse because he has, you know, he has what he's sort of doing it at this time is caught between contracts. He's like not making a lot of money because he's not delivering the goods for Columbia. Um, and he's not, you know, he's not making those blonde on blonde uh, songs anymore. He doesn't want to do that anymore. So maybe Rosemary is like, hey, like the muse that he has to go to and pump on the well a little bit. And Rosemary, you know, we'll, we'll give it to give it to him for a song, and you know, or you know, give give him a song out of it. So that's just one what one possibility of of you know who Rosemary could be. Um, and speaking of Rosemary being a prostitute, I had this theory that it's actually. Bob is the prostitute, and like Bob at this time, or the narrator, not Bob, but um, you know, singer. Like, yes, at this time, Bob. <laughs> he's, he's not making a lot of money. He's he's you know, living uh, a simple life in Woodstock, but he needs to, in order to make money, and then they are sending these songs to the Grossman, um, you know, in exchange for publishing. So, give it to me for a song. You know, maybe that's you know, mm. it goes to uh, you know Sally and Albert Grossman, and they. They give him some money for a song. It's a you know, it's a wicked life, but you know, no use in complaining. And then I, I, and also speaking of Rosemary, there is Rosemary, not that different in uh, mm. you know, the Jack of Hearts in '67. So 
there's a there's a soft gut in this song. There's Big Jim in that song. So I, I, and um, in uh, Lily Rosemary and Jack of Hearts, Big Jim thinks that he recognizes Rosemary maybe from down in Mexico. So there's a, there's a correlation there as well. <laughs> wow. By the way, I'm glad you mentioned the the fat gut. Uh, on on BobDone.com, fat gut is not capitalized, but the way he sings it to me, it sounds like a proper name. Like he's calling there's somebody called Fat Gut, uh, which would fit, you know, in, in among the the carnival atmosphere of the basement teams. I could see somebody being named Fat Gut, uh, but here it seems like it's lowercase, so it may just be a a nickname. But it, I always took it as like it's it's a name of somebody in particular. Yeah, I mean, that's why I was thinking, that made me think of, you know, who who would, could that could be, because it may not be Ro- uh, Rosemary, uh, Rosemary. Um, so that's why I was thinking, oh, maybe it could be Albert Grossman, and maybe Rosemary is uh, his wife, and that, that's where I came up with the theory about maybe this is about, you know, delivering songs to the Grossmans in, in exchange for a little bit of a scratch to uh, you know, keep his, his simple life going and Woodstock. We've talked about this on other episodes too, but I, I always wonder like, what is it's got to, what must it feel like to, especially in the period you're talking about where he knows that Columbia Records was really leaning on him to start getting back to recording and finishing Tarantula and whatever. But like to know, like, I, again, I've never written a song, but to, um, to be able to have a piece of inspiration to write a song. And then while you're doing it, knowing that, this thing that you're working on, which you're hoping is, uh, you know, I don't know, smart or original or interesting or, and is, it has some personal value to you because it's coming out of you in, in this moment, has a dollar value attached to it. The minute you hand it yeah. off, the minute you give it to somebody, it becomes a thing that can be sold. And obviously, if you're someone who's inclined to to do that, it's great because you're you're you know you're generating income just with the power of your creativity. But at the same time, I could see how that might feel like you're cheapening it a little. If you have this wonderful little notion, and then you hand it to somebody, and all of a sudden it gets sent off to other artists to cover, and it it becomes this commodity. And I could see whether you might recoil a little bit and be like, eh, I, you know, it was just this little thing that I wrote. It wasn't meant to become this thing. But of course you've got somebody like an Albert Grossman or your Columbia records that are like, give me, give me, give me, give me, you know what I mean? Because at this point, a Bob Dylan song, any Bob Dylan song had tremendous value as just material for other people to cover. Yeah, absolutely. And there was a lot, a few of the basement tapes, you know, those didn't get out because, you know, they needed to get some money for, from the, from the publishing to have other artists cover it. So, you know, the first, times we hear some of those basement tape songs are from other people covering them. Yep. Yeah. Um, so we, you mentioned at the top of the show, the, uh, the, the cover, there's other covers, but the most famous one is by Calexico and Jim James, which appears in I'm not there, the movie. And uh, I would say the, the, the cover of it, uh, first of all, it's use in the movie is pretty terrific. Uh, I'm not the hugest fan of I'm not there. I probably do need to watch it again. It's been a long while, but the use of it uh, in the movie is really beautiful. And like, like you were talking about the delivery of it, it, it has like this wonderful, mournful, epic feel to it. Uh, when again, the, the lyrics seem so simple, but it has that just you, the, the performance of it and the way it's put across in the movie uh, is really quite beautiful, and it's it's just it's a terrific cover of again like a you know relatively obscure song. Yeah, and and Jim James's voice is just so beautiful. He he reaches those registers that you know that uh, you know just almost, almost an angelic sounding, and he, he's just the perfect vocalist for that. Although he wasn't the first choice, I don't know if you in your research on it. I think the first choice was um, Will Olden, Bonnie Prince Billy, who also has a cover of Going Acapulco. And uh, I think Todd Haynes had, was asked him to do it first, but Will Oldham's father died right around the time we were supposed to uh, shoot the film. But Jim James was, a, was sort of a last minute replacement for Will Oldham. Oh, uh, wow. I, I think it worked out perfectly. I also love that uh, Jim James has the white face makeup on, which, you know, yeah. rec- recalls Bob on the Rolling Thunder tour. It has that, that, that you know, that look to it. It's such a combination of because it's got the white face, so it's rolling the thunder. It's 
basement tape song, but then it takes place in the town of Riddle, where um, uh, it's sort of like a, a proxy for Billy the Kid, Pat mm-hmm. Garrett and Billy the Kid. So it's all these three different eras of Dylan sort of mashed up into this, this one scene in, in the film. And I, I love the film. I think it, it's, uh, you know, it's for, the, it's for the first documentary and then the, um, the Pennebacher film. It, you can only talk about Dylan or like so get a sense of Dylan for short periods of time. There's no, it's, it's so difficult to, to do a film about Dylan and cover all those periods. And that's why I think the Todd Haynes, the Todd Haynes version is just like, there's just, just so many different versions of him and, and it's all the same story, but it's all through different, um, different people and uh, Kate Blanchett does an amazing job doing the, the early Dylan mm. and I, I feel like that really you, you can't tell it as a straight story and I think Scorsese finally figured that out when he did the Rolling Thunder documentary where he uh, it, it didn't tell it as a straightaway documentary it was you know all this fictitious things mixed into the mixed into it and I think yeah the movie is one of my favorites mm. Um, <laughs> yeah, it's, uh, you know, a bunch of years ago, uh, many, God, many years ago, back when CDs were still a thing, which of course they are not anymore. I remember there was a bunch of, um, reissues of Johnny Cash CDs, but they were compiled uh, by theme, uh, cause they were digging back in this catalog. And if I, if, if memory serves me well, uh, there were three of them and it was like Johnny Cash, love God and murder. So it was like all songs about love, all songs about God, and all songs about murder. And I mean, good Lord, if you wanted to like sum up all of Johnny Cash's recorded career, I think Love, God, Murder would pretty much do it for you. And again, you know, CDs are not a thing anymore. So no one's ever going to do this again. But it's like I was thinking you really could make an amazing Bob Dylan travelogue CD, (laughs) you know, of just places where he's going. You know, he's talking about a physical location uh, and it seems like, oh, he's talking about, and then you're like, well, but it's metaphorical, maybe. I mean, he's got Durango, and he's got Acapulco, and he's got Key West, he's got the Highlands. Like, you really could compile quite a nice collection of Bob Dylan travel songs if, if someone was so inclined. Absolutely. I mean, you can make a playlist right now on one of the streamers. <laughs> I'm okay. sure it's out there. Yeah, that, that right. It must be out there already. So, um, yeah, they said it's it's a it's a really interesting song. Again, it's not one that ever popped for me uh, terribly when I listened to the basement taste. And then going back and doing the research on it and listening to it, I, you know, just part of the fun of the show is getting a new appreciation of a song that I never spent a whole lot of time uh, listening to. And as I got deeper into it, I was like, Oh yeah, there's a whole, it's a whole lot going on here. And again, it has this wonderful mournful sound to it which i didn't really fully appreciate a lot i will say you know initially when i heard the basement tapes a lot of it i was like oh they're just stoned and i <laughs> everything was that kind of like slow you know big dumb blonde with the wheel gourd you know i was like all right okay i got it but i i have a greater appreciation for it now and so and particularly this song so thank you so much for wanting to talk about this one my pleasure rob thanks for allowing me to uh, spend some time talking about it with you Oh, you're very welcome. Like I said, it's uh, we always have fun whether it's talking Mash or talking Bob Dylan. <laughs> it's always fun to have you on the on the, one of my shows. So as we're wrapping up here now, recently I've been asking people a question, uh, courtesy of the Pomegranate County Irregulars, uh, which is if you get invited to a Bob Dylan tribute concert and you're on first, what song do you perform? Now, Rob, I will allow you to answer that question, but. I came up with another question that I think I'm going to start grandfathering into the show. So you can answer, okay. you can answer either one or both. I don't want to put you on the spot. So the other question I came up with was, and it's kind of similar to the question you asked me at the top of the show, which is if, uh, cause I was thinking about, um, the get back documentary, you know, that the Beatles have had on, right. on Disney plus all 17 hours of it. And if there was one Bob Dylan album that you, through some magical, you know, time, some, some time machine could sit in on the recording sessions of what Dylan album would that be? So you can answer either one of those questions or both. It's up to you. Um, I'll, I'll answer both. Okay. Because I, I was expecting the first one, but I will say for, I would say maybe um, something like, uh, this is my first instinct is something in the, in the Christian period, saved or shot of love, because that's the period I know the least about. Mm-hmm. And I, I don't, 
there's, there's not been a lot of coverage on what, what, what was going on in Dylan's life at the time. So I'll, I'll say, you know, save. I, I want to be there to see like what's really going on. You know, what the gospel singers are around, like is Dylan really, you know, is he super religious then? Is it, you know, what, what's going on in his mind during that time? Because I feel like that's one period that we haven't gotten to know too much about. Um, that's my, that's my first instinct. Okay. As far as a tribute, tribute song, um, at first I was thinking nobody really wants to hear me sing, but so I, I was thinking maybe, you know, we'll do uh, Woolbury's Handle with Care and I'll just do, you know, Bob's verse, you know, that everybody, <laughs> everybody. I could, I could do that without a problem. Um, but then, you know, looking at, looking at the covers to Go Acapulco, I, I listened to that uh, Bonnie Prince Dilly cover of Go Acapulco. He also has a cover of Brownsville Girl, which I'd never seen covered before. Ambitious. And, like, and he's just, it's just, it's like a speaking, he's doing it's like a speak style, but with the backup singers and the horns, it still sounds great. So I was thinking, wow, I could really do a brown, I can, you know, if you've got 17 minutes, I can do a speaking Brownsville <laughs> girl. And if I have the, a full band behind me. Um, but in the spirit of the basement tapes, I was thinking I'm going to land on You Ain't Going Nowhere because it's, you know, we'll start off the, the tribute show with a big sing-along. And there's not a lot of big sing-along songs in the Dylan canon, but I think You Ain't Going Nowhere is uh, probably one that'll get the crowd going. That's a great pick. That's another one of my all-time favorite songs. So that's a really great pick. But I will say, if you are concerned about not being able to sing, you could just do Last Thoughts on Woody Guthrie. Just do the poem. We don't have to sing it. You could just talk it. So you could just do that, or do selections from Tarantula if you really want to, uh, you know, thin the thin the crowd out before this show starts. So uh, anyway, those are well. First of all, thank you so much for being generous enough to answer both questions, and those are both terrific answers. Uh, I think this is great. So, uh, Rob, thank you so much for coming by, man. I really appreciate it. I, I, I'm so excited to have, have gotten the chance to talk to you again, Rob. I look forward to doing it again soon. Absolutely. So, of course, everybody, if you want to find back episodes of this show, just go to our website, finewaterpodcast.com. You can subscribe to Pod Dylan on any podcatcher of your choice. And then finally, if you want to support the Fine Water Podcast Network, of which Pod Dylan is a part, please go to patreon.com slash fwpodcast, and there you can unlock various rewards, one of which is to be name-checked on a show of your choice. So big thanks to Robert Ward, Steve Cronin, Max Hutzel, George Doherty, Bucky Meckel, and Paul Ruther for their support of Pod Dylan. I very much appreciate it. So that's going to do it. Thanks, everybody, for listening, and we will see you later. Bye. Gentlemen, this is Miss Anna Jane Sitton, originally of Carlsbad, New Mexico, and now working in Hollywood as Miss Arlene Dahl's stand-in and secretary. Now, because her work is so glamorous, we wondered where she would travel if given an all-expenses-paid trip. Listen. Well, first of all, Miss Dahl graciously gave me the time off to make the trip. But the biggest problem was trying to decide on the one place above all others that I'd like to visit. Finally, I decided on the place that so many Hollywood people call their second home, Acapulco, the sunshine Shangri-La. <laughs>